Well, it's a joy to welcome you again. Thank you so much for tuning in and watching. You'll never know just what your support means. And to know that we can be together and we can be in unity as we gather around the Word of God in these weird times is a lot of uncertainty. But in the midst of this uncertainty, we have some unchanging and timeless truths because we have an unchanging and timeless God. And that's a, a wonderful thing. We've been going through some uh, psalms on Wednesday nights for quite a while here, and I hope they've been a blessing to you. Uh, one of the things about the book of Psalms is there's always something a little bit different, and yet there always are some things that are, well, as we said just a minute ago, timeless and unchanging. They always bring you back to God. They're worshipful. And you may find the uh, different um, writers. David is not the only one that wrote these uh, psalms that are collected here. There are other writers as well. But David is kind of the one we think of uh, mainly when we think of the book of Psalms. And David finds himself in all kinds of situations. And yet in all of those situations, as different as they may be, and incidentally, those different situations are kind of nice because through the Psalms, you always find something that kind of identifies with you and where you are at any different stage of life or some of the trials or battles or even some of the victories and the joys and celebrations. It's all there. And yet, as we go through those things and identify with them, they always point us back to the unchanging God who has given us his unchanging world. That really is the only stability that we have in uh, this earth. And that's not something new, by the way. It's not just that we need them in our day. David needed them just as much in his day as we do now. Because human nature doesn't change, and the enemy hasn't changed, and there are still attacks, and there are trials, there are griefs, there are burdens, all kinds of things that uh, tempt us, distract us, and pull us away. And so we need this, and it's nice to have these, I mean, really ancient words that speak to us today just as they did back then. You ought to always be thankful for the fact that God has preserved his word. And in particular, this is just one of those great books. Now, uh, remember, these are a collection of songs. Uh, they're not really chapters as we go through the book. They are a collection of different songs or hymns. And uh, they would sing them in their synagogue worship. They would sing them in their family times and family worship, family devotions. They would sing them when they would go to the temple, when they would go to Passover. They would sing them after they had the Passover feast. A certain collection of psalms are called the Hallel Psalms because they all uh, focus in on the word hallelujah or praise the Lord in English. And in fact, Jesus this is what they sang after the uh, Passover and the Lord's Supper when he was getting ready to go to Calvary. It says they sang a hymn and they departed. Well, they would sing out of the Psalms, of course. And uh, so th they're very special and they're wonderful that God has given them to us. But have you ever noticed God did not give us the chords? He did not give us the rhythms. He did not give us the key. He didn't give us anything like that at all. Uh, 
Doesn't it seem strange that if you were going to preserve a hymn, that you kind of would want the notes? And yet God didn't do that. And uh, I don't know why that's not in here. Um, I don't know why we don't really know. But I would kind of make a little bit of uh, sanctified speculation. Maybe it's because so many times in music, we give the musicians and we give the songs kind of a theological pass. You know, they can say something, well, it's not quite right, and that's not really the way it ought to say it, but it's just a song, and it doesn't really matter. Maybe the uh, fact that God preserved the words and not the music is a subtle way of telling us, you better be careful what you sing. It matters what you sing. It matters uh, what comes out of your heart and what comes out of your mouth. And it also matters what is put into your mind through singing. This is uh, one of those things that for anybody who is a preacher or a teacher of the word, it kind of stabs at our heart a little bit. But so many times people remember what they sing more than anything that we preach or teach. That makes it a blessing. You can teach your children scripture songs and songs that have rich theology in them and they'll be with them the rest of their lives at the same time you can teach them error you can teach them things that are going to stir up well a lot of music today uh, and by the way i didn't intend on saying this but i'll say it anyway parents if you don't know what your kids especially your teenagers are listening to you might ought to find out because it's not the stuff that you listen to, and some of it is absolutely vile and blasphemous, and you probably ought to know what's going on. You probably won't like it, and you probably won't be able to relate to it, but you may be shocked at what is in the songs, if you can call them that, that they are listening to. Some of them, um, not long ago, I was listening to a podcast I thought on the internet you could say just about anything. And they were quoting as much as they could of a song by Carly B. I won't even get into it. And even on the podcast, there were words and lines in that song that they couldn't read. So you might ought to check that out because that kind of stuff gets into a kid's mind and it really does make a difference. I'll give you an illustration. How many of you that are old like me can be walking through Walmart or something like that in an elevator? You know, it's kind of sad when all of the songs that were popular when you were a kid, now they're the elevator music. And um, how many times do you hear a song and just the beginning chords, the opening chords of the song cause you to know exactly what song is getting ready to be sung and you can remember most of the lyrics and then it goes even further you can remember an event that happened maybe when you were a child when you were a teenager maybe it was something good maybe it was something positive or maybe it was something that you don't really need to be reminded of but there it is and it's stirred up 
And this is why music can be such a blessing and such a curse at the same time. We've got to be careful. And so uh, as we go through the Psalms, think about that. They would sing these. This is Psalm 95 that we're going to look at. So go ahead and get your Bible and open it up. I hope you do that even on these uh, videos because uh, you need to see what the Word of God says for yourself, not just listen to it. And uh, please don't be a casual listener. Make sure that you're paying attention and um, focusing in on what the Scripture has to say. And again, as I've told you so many times, make sure I'm accurate. Make sure I'm accurate on that. Now, uh, this psalm is what they would sing during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, it's called sometimes. And what would happen is these Israelis, this is long after they've come out of Egypt, long after they've been in the wilderness. And we think that David wrote this. We don't know that for sure, but we think that he did uh, to give you a little bit of time reference here. But they would have a certain festival, a certain feast where they would, uh, we might say, camp out. And they would live in these little temporary dwellings and uh, they would eat and sing and fellowship together. So why'd they do that for? Because they were remembering the time when they were nomads in the wilderness going from Egypt to the promised land before they had anything permanent. They were remembering the provision of God and how God took care of their ancestors way back there and way out there in the wilderness. Now, whenever we think of wilderness, if you're not careful, you're going to think of Abe Lincoln and Daniel Boone going through the forest. Wilderness in the Bible is not forest, it's desert. And so they were going through dry desert places. In the desert, it's open, you're kind of exposed, your enemies can see you, they can watch you, they can track you. Uh, it's just a, a different situation. It's also limited on resources. You have um, lack of water and um, those type of things. Uh, not much game to hunt in the desert. So uh, this is all something that was, in some ways, treacherous. And so this feast was to remind them that in the most treacherous times of life and in the most vulnerable times of life, you have a father. You have a heavenly father who watches over you and meets all of your needs. Paul would tell us in the New Testament, according to his riches in glory. So this is something that they would sing when uh, they were going through this particular feast or festival. And it's all about worship and honoring the Lord. Now, as we uh, get ready for this, couple of quotes that I found by uh, A.W. Tozer. And it's interesting, these quotes I'm going to read, um, I'm going to guess they probably came from the 1940s. Uh, when we think about church and church life, we think about the 40s and 50s being stable and more godly and, you know, that type of thing. And yet listen to what he said way back then. So relevant for today. The church that can't worship must be entertained. And men who can't lead a church to worship must provide the entertainment. 
Well, does that speak to our situation? Does that speak to what church has become in so many ways even now? We've got to be careful because we lose our focus and we lose it so very easily. You know, it uh, may be that somebody says, oh, we had 4,000 in church this past Sunday. But that's not really the issue, is it? The real issue is, was God glorified in all of that? Well, he may be. God can be glorified in amassing great crowds of people together. We saw that on the day of Pentecost. But at the same time, gathering a crowd is not the same thing as gathering a church and glorifying the Lord. We've got to be very, very careful about those things. Here's another quote from Mr. Tozer. Worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. Read that again. Worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. Now you'll notice there, he did not say that worship never reflects culture. Of course it does. See, we're uh, doing this today over the internet by live stream. And that is a reflection of our culture. Podcast, live stream, YouTube videos, all kinds of things like that. That's a reflection of who we are and what we do. And in and of themselves, they're what we would call amoral. They're not right, they're not wrong, they're not good, and they're not bad. They're just simply a vehicle that can be used for very good things or very bad things, right? That's a reflection of our culture. We think about the way that we dress. The Apostle Paul never wore a suit and tie when he preached. He wore his normal robes. In fact, probably... Uh, the people that gathered in the early church, they came to church Sunday was a work day for them, and a lot of them did not have uh, a variety of clothing, right? And so uh, they would come in their work clothes. That's just the way that they dressed. They wore robes and things like that. You go on into the Middle Ages, they would dress in a certain way. You get on into... Maybe, um, I don't know, the 1700s. Look at the way that George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson dressed. Look at the way they wore their hair. Look at the styles that they wore. And look at the way that they would speak. Even our language is a reflection of our culture. American English is different than British English in many respects. And even in America... English that is spoken in the southern part of the United States is different than English that is spoken in the northeastern part of the United States. Thank the Lord for that. But nonetheless, it's a reflection of our culture. Think about our musical styles. Paul never even dreamed of anything like southern gospel or contemporary Christian music, or even the old, old, old hymns from the Reformation. That was way after Paul, 1,500 years after the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul would sing more of a Jewish, Hebrew folk style of singing, right? The people in Rome, same thing. In fact, uh, what Mr. Tozer is saying here is not that our worship doesn't reflect our culture. 
I mean, thank God for indoor plumbing and air conditioning and those types of things. He just says when it reflects more of the culture, more is the operative word than it does of the Christ within us, now we know that something is wrong. And I think we're living in perilous times because I think that when you look at worship today or what's called worship, I think a lot of times it does reflect more of the world we live in than it does the Christ who lives in us. When I think about people and where they come from, it makes sense to me that uh, if you have a, a hippie that is saved in the early 70s out in California and the Jesus movement, and he's somebody like a Keith Green, we all, uh, most of us know him, when he gets saved and he wants to sing to the Lord, what's this singing going to sound like? It's going to sound like a hippie singing. And it's going to have that particular sound to it. Now, the Lord may bring him through sanctification out of some of the original stuff that he was in and make it better and make it more honoring to the Lord. You, you know what I mean by that. And the same time, if somebody is saved, an old hillbilly in the uh, mountains of Tennessee, that all he's ever known is bluegrass music and that style and that kind of singing, when he gets saved and he wants to sing about Jesus, probably going to sound like bluegrass, isn't it? Classical musician, the same way. All of us reflect our culture to some degree. And we get legalistic sometimes because we think that whatever ministers to me, well, that's what God wants. Is that the way it's going to be in heaven? Is that what we're going to sing? Has it always been that way? Why didn't they have it back 2,000 years ago? Why is it just now showing up? Or I mean, all kinds of things like that. So understand that God is our God in the present tense, knowing where we are, calling us out of this present evil age in which we live, and then changes our life, our course, and our direction. So no longer, even though we may reflect our culture, we no longer follow the culture. Christ takes the lead. The Word of God takes the lead. The Holy Spirit takes the lead. The glory of the Father takes the lead. And not what's cool, not what's relevant, and not what the world may like. Because they're never going to really like what we do if we accurately reflect Christ. We'll never be able to do it in the same energy, the same spirit, and to the same degree that they do because we're not called to do that. All of my life, people have kind of given the idea that, well, I know we have the Bible and that's where it all starts. But boy, if we could ever make a really, really, really good quality movie, then we would have revival. Well, I've seen a lot of that come and go. I'm still waiting for the revival, aren't you? God has chosen the foolish things in order to confound the wise. You ever read that? In fact, he even talks about the foolishness of preaching. Well, nobody has an attention span anymore, and nobody can listen to more than about 10 or 15 minutes of, of just audio and, you know, all of that kind of stuff that we hear. That's probably more a reflection upon us and our flesh and our selfishness and our lack of discipline and our lack of love for Christ more than it is anything else, just to be honest. And when we think about those kind of things, we tend to look and say there's got to be a better way, a different way, a cooler way in order to do it. And yet we need to just 
Settle in on what God has said and what God has ordained because that's what God will anoint. And if we ever needed the anointing of God, we need it today. So we need to pray about this and think about these things. Now, as we uh, consider what Jesus had to say about worship, you remember when he was with the woman at the well, he said that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. And he says that the Father is seeking these kind to worship him. I remember one time being at Graceway before I was a pastor, and uh, my father-in-law was uh, opening up in prayer, and he made this statement. It's pretty close. He said, Lord, the word says you are seeking worshipers. Father, my prayer is that your search will stop here with us. That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. And that's what I pray for you and for me. And so we've got to understand some things about worship in order to be able to do that. So, Psalm 91, with that uh, lengthy introduction, look at verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. By the way, that's deep. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Let's stop there. I would encourage you to go ahead and read the rest of it. But I want to break this down into uh, some points here. And number one, let's talk about the components of worship. What is worship? Is worship just 11 o'clock on Sunday morning? You know, some people have called that the sacred hour, you know. And uh, some people are just saying, just get us out before noon so we can beat the Methodists to the cafeteria, if anybody still does that. Um, worship seems to me for a lot of people to be something you do on Sunday morning at about 11 o'clock. Truth of the matter is, the only reason that Americans worship during that time frame, ours is a little different, but that's mainly when people do it, that was so farmers could get their chores done before they went to church. That was an accommodation to the culture, in other words. They had to get up and they had to milk cows on Sunday, just like they did on Saturday or on Monday, and they had to take care of their livestock and make sure they were fed and watered. And then, when people lived out on farms, it would take them a while to get to a church. And so, depending on how far away uh, you lived and how big the farms were and how much land you had to cross, it might take you quite a while by horseback or in a horse and buggy to uh, get to church. And in those days, they typically only had one service because by the time you got to church with your horses and then you uh, worshipped and then you got back home, uh, it was 
really, really tough to try to get back for an evening service. An evening service is just the invention of the early 20th century. And uh, that kind of corresponded with cities and more urbanization and suburbs and also automobiles and good roads where people could travel. Um, those are things that, again, reflect and accommodate the culture, right? But uh, when they would come together and they would worship at 11 o'clock and just sit and maybe sing and maybe pray and maybe give and listen to some preaching, and then they would say, oh, we had a great time of worship. We say the same thing today. That was a good worship service. I had someone say to me one time, man, I really enjoyed the worship service. And I said, I did too, but I sure hope God enjoyed it more than us. This really was for him. And while we may get something out of the worship services, it's actually for the Lord, to the Lord, and about the Lord, and everything else just sort of spills over the overflow is what really blesses us, but we must never be the focus of it. So the main component of worship is found in the words, to the Lord, there in the first verse, to the Lord. If it's not done to the Lord, might as well forget it. If it's not done to the Lord, then it is worthless. It's going to burn up at the judgment seat of Christ, and it's not really going to do anything. And whatever effects we may have from our quote-unquote worship, they won't last any longer than um, maybe getting out of the parking lot. And maybe that's a big problem. Maybe that's why our country now has bigger churches than ever before. But we're more wicked than ever before, too. The, we are not impacted by the church. We are not really um, affected, I guess you would say, by church in America today. There's very little impact that we have, and the world is feeling free to ignore us. Well, that's bad enough. But then when you look at what's happened in this pandemic and what's still happening in California, John MacArthur's church, and he's not the only one, by the way. There are other churches that are doing the same thing that he's doing that no one's really talking about or hearing about, and they're suffering persecution. Why? Because the church has become so powerless that now the government doesn't just ignore us, but they actually feel free, they feel free to attack the church. Maybe that is a reflection of the fact that as a, as a whole and in general, we're not really worshiping as we should, and there's not a lot of power and a lot of change and a lot of uh, discernible sanctification in our lives any longer. And so people can go to church, but it doesn't affect the way that they vote. Something wrong with that. People can go to church, but it doesn't affect their morals. And sex outside of marriage is off the charts now. People living together outside of marriage. It's off the charts now. What's going on? And many of these people will claim to be believers. I think what David is saying to us is, to the Lord is the key. And you notice that as he talks about these things, notice that it's plural. It's not just... And, and if you have to watch live stream because you can't get to church or something, that's why we do it. But if you're hiding out in the live stream, oh, it's just easier. We don't have to get dressed. We don't have to get the kids ready. We don't have to drive anywhere. We can watch it whenever we want to. We can get up and do whatever. 
then you need to rethink that. Worship, he says, is let us. Let us, it's plural. And they're singing and they're shouting. Worship ought to be expressive and participatory and not just setting and enduring something. And it's filled with thanksgiving because you can't help but worship when you're truly thankful. Secondly, notice here that there's a call to worship, and that is that the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. He's the only one. And we think about his greatness, and we think about his goodness, and we need to think more about those things. All of his attributes fall into the category of his greatness, but also his goodness. And hadn't the Lord been so very good to us, even in these weird times? Nothing, nothing, nothing compares to him. And no one else has anything to offer you like the Lord does. Thirdly, David seems to make it real clear when he talks about worship. That uh, first part of verse 4, in his hand are the deep places of the earth, right? And the heights of the hills are his also. And then the sea and everything that's in his. And why is it his? Because he made it and he formed it. Hey, don't worship anything or anyone that can't hold the depths of the earth in their hands. Don't worship something that you made. Don't worship something that depends upon you. Don't worship something that you have to kind of propped up, prop up or hold up. They would take their idols and put them, uh, make them. That's your first clue, something's wrong. And then they would put them up on the high places. And David said, different than an idol who supposedly worshipped on the high places, worship the God who made everything and holds the depths in his hand. Don't worship anyone who is inferior. And then the last thing, and we'll close with this. David says that it is our creative duty to worship the Lord. What does that mean? Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. Why? Our maker. We are his children, the sheep of his pasture. For he has made us and not we ourselves, it says in Psalm 100. And over and over, even in the New Testament, you find this idea, John chapter 1. It talks about Jesus being the creator. In Colossians, Jesus is the creator. In the book of Revelation, he's the creator. There's just something about the fact that we are not just products of random chance and mutations and an accident. We're created by God. And he is the one who owns us. He's the one who loves us. This is the command that we have. No wonder the enemy attacks the idea of creation. It's not just about the existence of God. It's the idea that the existence of God and knowing that he created you makes accountability in your life. It changes you and it changes me. So he attacks that, doesn't he? There's an old story about a little boy that made a boat, a little sailboat. And he made it, and he painted it, and uh, made it real nice. Carved his initials into the wood of the boat, and then took it out to a stream. And he had it attached with a string, and uh, oh, it got away from him. And it took off down the stream. The stream was moving fairly rapidly and going faster than the little boy could go. And the little boy lost his boat. And when the little boy looked around for it and couldn't find it, he resigned himself to the fact that his little toy boat was gone. 
And he just kind of forgot about it. Till one day he was in the middle of their little town, saw a toy store, went and looked in the window of the toy store, and what do you think he saw? There was the boat. And he went into the boat, uh, and into the shop, and he went to the shopkeeper, and he said, how much for that boat that's over there in the window? And the man said, oh, you can have it for $2.50. And the little boy took his allowance out, paid the two fifty, and got the boat. And when he got the boat, he held the boat up close, and he said, oh, little boat, he said, oh, I love you, I made you, and I bought you, and you're mine, and I'm never going to let you go. You know, the Lord looks at you, and he's marked you off as his child. He made you, and he bought you when he died for your soul on the cross of Calvary. And he's never going to let you go. And this is the God that deserves all of our worship. God bless you as you worship the Lord. Got it?